It isn't every day that two people from the same family go missing within a few weeks of each other. But that's exactly what happened with Francesca and Michela Martinez. It began in June of 2000 with Francesca. The official story is that she ran away, which I believe attributes to the very little coverage this case seems to have gotten. I found no results while searching through newspaper archives, as well as various news outlets from New Jersey. Nevertheless, here is what we know. It was the 9th of June, 2000, just a day before the girls' 13th birthday. Francesca's twin sister, Michela, said they were both at the 17th Avenue and East 22nd Street when Francesca said she was going to head to the store down the street. Sometime later, I can't find a clear indication of how much time had passed, the girl's stepfather went to the store to find her, only to learn she'd never shown up. At 1.30 p.m. that same day, the Martinez's home received a call. Michela answered, and Francesca was on the other end, saying she was with friends at the Great Falls in Pacific River and Patterson. She pleaded with her sister not to tell anyone before hanging up. This was the last known contact Francesca had with her family. There was little known about where she might actually be. According to her close friends, she'd made mention of the Puerto Rican Day Parade in Manhattan, New York, on the 11th of June, two days after she went missing, but there is no way to know if she actually ended up there or how she would have gotten there, though there are some theories. Francesca's friends also reported that she'd been with a 22-year-old for some time, and Francesca believed that the two were dating. In reality, she was being groomed by a pedophile, and it's my personal belief this man, whoever he may be, most likely played a large part in her disappearance. Sometime following Francesca's vanishing, again, there's been no specific time frame given, the clothing she'd been wearing the day she went missing showed up in the driveway of her mother's home. They were inside of a supermarket bag tied shut. The shoes were missing, and the clothes weren't torn. From what I can find, that's the last bit of information on Francesca's case. Personally, while it may be pessimistic, I don't believe she's alive. I feel that the clothing being left at her mother's house was a sign that she was never going to come back. Of course, the story of the Martinez girls doesn't stop there. On the 22nd of July, Michela went missing as well. This time, there seemed to be at least some semblance of a motive. Michela left a note at home for her mother expressing her disappointment that her mother no longer loved their stepfather and accused her of having an affair. Her mother has denied that she was having relations with anyone. Michelle goes on to state that both of them, her and Francesca, weren't happy in the house, leading some to believe that she and Francesca left by their own free will. Many online theorized the girls went to New York, most likely Brooklyn or the Bronx, and if they did, I'm not sure that implies a positive outcome, whether that be the girls living with someone much older than them, being victims of kidnapping and suffering from some kind of Stockholm Syndrome, or being roped into sex trafficking, which is another popular theory. Of course, we can't look past the theory that the girls could have been murdered. With such little coverage on the case, it's hard to imagine the investigation was as thorough as it should have been. Finally, some online point to the stepfather, Hippolito Miguel Corniel, as a suspect, given the fact that he served 17 years on one count of aggravated manslaughter. The brother of the two girls believed one of them 
may have been carrying his child back in 2000. There is no evidence to back this theory, though. As of now, the young girls haven't been found, and there seem to be no suspects or really any leads at all. Looking through the various New Jersey news outlets showed no results of their names or this investigation. I'm not sure why the investigation seemed to be so surface level, but part of me believes it had something to do with the two girls being of Puerto Rican descent. We've seen in the past that some cases involving minorities or people of color, the investigation seems to hold less value. Regardless, if that is the case or not, these two little girls are still missing and need to be found. They would both be 33 at this point, and these age-progress photos would put them right around that age. If you know anything that can help the police in this case, don't hesitate to report it. You can call the Patterson Police Department at 973-321-1111. On the 15th of July, 1982, the body of a young woman was found in the cemetery of a small town in Blairstown in New Jersey. The woman, believed to have been anywhere between 14 and 20 years old, suffered massive head trauma caused by blunt force. It was said to have been difficult to even make out the features of a face. Along with this, her body had been left there for a substantial amount of time before her discovery. I've seen estimations of two days all the way up to two weeks. The woman's skirt and shirt pictured here was removed from her body and placed back over her legs, but given the amount of time she was exposed to the elements, it's unknown if she had been sexually assaulted. The name Princess Doe was given to the case by Lieutenant Eric Kranz, who said he'd wanted the case to be more identifiable than other Doe cases. When so many pile up, it can be difficult to allocate resources to the ones that need it the most. Giving the woman a name ensured that those on the outside looking in, if they had information, had a name to attach to it. Speaking of names, many believe this young woman could have had hers back sooner rather than later. From an article published in 1985, investigators said yesterday they believe a California girl who left her home nearly six years ago may be the Princess Doe, the name given to the badly beaten body of a teenager found in a cemetery ravine in July of 1982. Warren County Prosecutor Howard McGinn said officials have a strong suspicion that the body may be that of Diana Janice Dye. Another article published the same year also pushed this theory and explained where the explanation came from. Quote, Princess Doe's description was the first entry in the National Crime Information Center's missing persons computer network. San Jose detectives spotted the similarities through the computer network in April 1984 and notified New Jersey investigators that the murdered girl might be Diana. Diana left home July 30th, 1979. For many years, it was believed that Diana was the young woman found in New Jersey, despite many things, specifically dental records, pointing to that not being the case. In 2003, however, Diana's mother submitted DNA for testing, and it was determined that Diana was not the Princess Doe. During all of that investigation into Diana Dye, another possible lead came forward in 1999 through the testimony of Donna Kinlaw. She claimed her husband, Arthur, and her were responsible for the death of the Princess Doe. 
She'd been arrested in California after attempting welfare fraud under a fake name. While the police were questioning her, she gave details about two murders committed by Arthur that would lead to both of them being convicted. While locked away, she brought up the story of another woman, a sex worker who was killed in a cemetery in 1982. There were also some reports stating he'd brought home a teenage girl that same year, assumingly the same woman he'd later murder in the cemetery with an aluminum baseball bat. In an article from August 2012, the interview done with Donna was brought up again where she claimed Arthur threatened to, quote, take your life just like I did hers when referring to the young woman he'd killed in a cemetery. This testimony isn't enough, however. Lieutenant Spears gave an explanation saying, let's put it this way. I can't use the words confession. He made some admissions. I'll put it in these terms. He claimed responsibility for her death, but I have no physical evidence to confirm that. And without the identity of the Princess Doe, I have no way of connecting the dots, so to speak, putting her in a place where he could have been and would have been at the same time. That's the unfortunate thing right now. The key thing is to identify her. If we could identify her, then I can try and verify the information author Kinlaw provided. If Arthur was the man who took Princess Doe's life, there just isn't anything to tie him to it as of now. If you believe you have any information that can lead to Princess Doe getting her name back or a lead that sends investigators into the right direction, don't hesitate to report it. Call the Warren County Police at 908 753 one zero zero zero. Tiffany's case can be summed up with just the opening of this article from 2016. A medical examiner's ruling that Tiffany Valiente committed suicide when a New Jersey transit train struck her last year never made sense to her family. It's a story very similar to another case we've covered here, but before we get distracted, let's start with who Tiffany was. From all accounts, Tiffany was an incredibly kind, happy, and outgoing person. From the same article, we see she'd just graduated from Oak Crest High in May's Landing and was awarded a volleyball scholarship for Mercy College in the fall. She was excited about what the future held for her. On the night of her cousin's graduation party, she held that same jovial outlook. Friends and family have said that she was more than excited to go to the party and celebrate, ready to rein in what was next for her and her friends and family. But the party was the last time she was seen alive. The party for her cousin took place just across the street from her home, and reports put her leaving around 9.30, fairly late for someone who was said to be incredibly afraid of the dark. With that said, it would have been a very short walk. But, according to the official ruling in her case, that doesn't seem to have been what she did after leaving. Just shy of two hours after leaving the party, Tiffany was struck by a train near Prague Avenue in Galloway Township. Five days of investigation led to the ruling of suicide. From the beginning, Tiffany's family has been incredibly vocal and against this decision, and in my opinion, for good reason. The discrepancies start with the initial investigation and the quick ruling that followed. First, Tiffany didn't have some of her clothing with her when she was killed. 
Her shorts have never been located, and her shirt was found near the scene. Her mother recovered Tiffany's shoes and a headband while walking down the streets near her home, saying she was attempting to cope with the loss. Furthermore, Tiffany's phone was found at the foot of her home's driveway, and autopsy photos reveal that Tiffany's feet suffered no abrasions, scratches, or had any trace of dirt or mud. NewJersey.com covered this story and explained that if Tiffany would have taken off her shoes and walked four miles to a remote area, her feet would have shown that to be evident. Secondly, on top of the quick ruling from the state's medical examiner, the family's attorney made the point that two very important things were never carried out, a psychological autopsy and a rape kit. An article from the Press of Atlantic City stated, Because investigators concluded suicide so quickly, much of the evidence collected was never tested. A toxicology report showed that Valiente had no alcohol or drugs in her system, but otherwise it appears little or other testing was done. DNA swabs were left untested, and contradictory statements from the engineers and the train's black box were left unexplained. Additionally, Valiente wasn't examined for rape, despite being found wearing few clothes. Moreover, the psychological autopsy we mentioned would have consisted of the police speaking with family and friends, classmates, teachers, to determine if Tiffany was suicidal, which, as we've seen, her parents state, and is fairly obvious just from what I've observed, was simply not the case. As a quick side note, and I'm not dismissing the wrongful conclusion of suicide here, it has been reported that the New Jersey Medical Examiner's Office is one of the worst in the country. They're said to be incredibly disorganized and understaffed, even as of late. There is an entire article about it by New Jersey Advanced Media that you can find in the description, along with all of my sources used in the video. As recently as the 12th of July 2019, the family is said to have been filing a new lawsuit in the Superior Court in Atlantic County to have the agency release items and evidence found at the scene so the family can pursue further DNA testing, something that was never done by the police given the quick ruling of suicide. They're also offering a $25,000 reward to anyone with information. You can submit any tips you have to the New Jersey tip line at nj.com forward slash tips, or you can call the Atlantic County tip line at 1-800-658-8477. I wanted to take a moment for Joseph Hoopengartner. A few of you suggested his case to me, and I thought it would be fairly straightforward, but as I looked into it, I quickly learned why this is such a popular request. There isn't a lot online about Joseph. As a matter of fact, I can't find a full online article about him, just articles mentioning him in passing. It seems like his case has become somewhat of a local legend in the Denver township. I don't like that, so here is what we know. Joseph was a self-employed principal in Levin and Gardner Plumbing Contractors Lakehurst. At the time of his murder, 1981, he was living in Dover Township with his second wife and two daughters from a previous marriage. Joseph and his second wife had been married since 1969, though his ex-wife said they did stay in contact after the divorce. 
On January 24, 1981, Joseph's lifeless body was discovered at 2.30 p.m. by a hunter in the area. The body was located in Lacey Township in the Greenwood Forest Wildlife Management Area. According to reports, Joseph hadn't been there for long. Quote, a spokeswoman from the Ocean County Medical Examiner's Office said Joseph had been dead only a few hours before the body was found. Hubengardner died of a laceration and hemorrhage of the brain. He'd been shot three times in the head and body, though at the time of this article, police weren't sure what caliber the murder weapon was. They also said there was no motive at this time. Finally, Joseph's truck was found the following day in the parking lot of the Playdrome Bowling Lanes at Route 37 and Conifer Street, Tom's River. The truck had been wiped and no prints were found. And it seems that's where this case just ends. Everything else past this point, as far as newspapers and online articles, only mention Joseph in passing. There's been no mention of new evidence, no leads, no new suspects, despite police interviewing a quote-unquote substantial amount of people who saw Joseph on the day of his murder, but no one can give them any clues as to who could have taken his life. This is easily one of the most perplexing cases I've talked about, and it doesn't help that I can't seem to find a single photo of Joseph online other than one taken at the scene. It really seems like someone may know something, but just isn't telling. If you do believe you have anything that can help, you can call the Morris County Police at 973-366-2200. Hey everyone, I wanted to give a quick thank you to everyone who took some time out of their day, afternoon, or evening to listen to these cases tonight. Normally we only do about three cases per um, cold case video, but uh, the first case with the missing twin sisters, I could not ignore that. That case is incredibly tragic, and Joseph Hoopengardner's case is just strange. So I kind of tacked it on at the end there, but... It felt important to talk about because there just doesn't seem to be a lot there. Um, Anyway, uh, thanks again for listening. I hope you all are having a wonderful day, evening, whichever it may be. If you want to support the channel and get content a day, two days in advance, you can become a channel member or become a patron. They're both 99 cents, a dollar a month. You can check it down in the description below. You can also become part of the Mr. Davis Investigation Agency. Links to the merch for that is also down in the description below. Um, Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Uh, Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. And as always, stay safe out there.